So in this episode, Deanna and I sit down with Sheridan Cannon. She comes in so brave and open with her story about her son who had an addiction from a very early age. And she talks through what she's learned as a mother, what that did to her family, how that impacted her relationship with her son, her husband, and her other children. And truly, I mean, don't you feel, Christy, like it's like a nightmare of her, what she went through, what she was trying to deal with, pulling at her heart as a mother, and then dealing with her other children and her husband and just everything in the community, even. I mean, it's a it's a pretty impactful story. Well, you know, the shame that goes along with it and how she managed through that. So I just have nothing but respect for her and the fact that she was here to share her story so that we could help other parents that may be struggling with this. Yeah. And fighting, fighting for your family and fighting for your son. Hi, I'm Deanna Robbins. And I'm Christy North. Welcome to Pieces of a Woman podcast, where we explore all the pieces that make up a woman, mind, body, and soul. By embracing all complexities of being a woman, our goal is to share real stories that inspire growth and empower all women to be the best versions of themselves. And as Maya Angelou so eloquently said, when we know better, we do better. Thank you for taking this journey with us. Tell us about yourself, Sheridan. I am Sheridan Cannon. I have been in real estate for 20 some odd years. Um, married to a real estate agent as well. How many kids do you have? We have five between the two of us. So you're a blended family. Mm-hmm. I had two, he had one, and then we had twins together. Okay, so tell us the ages of your kids and their names. Cade is the oldest. Um, he's 32. And then Kenzie, these are both my kids. Kate and Kenzie is ugh, 29. And Gary's daughter, Bree, is also, she turns 30 in October. So she's 29 also. Um, and then the twins just turned 20. Oh my gosh, they're 20. I know. <laughs> I know. So we're going to talk about I'm Kate. Old. Okay. And we would love if you could just take us back. And share with us some stories in his early years and then just kind of share your journey through the last, what would it be for him, 20 mm. years or what does that look like? It would be, he raced motocross, gosh, in, he probably was in seventh, eighth grade. But I remember when he was about 15 is when he started breaking bones, crashing and, you know, breaking some bones, doing some damage. and. Each trip to the ER, you know, they wrap them up and send them home with pain pills. And the the one where he really, the first time he broke his collarbone, we were in Mesquite and the ER was just chock full of, it was a big race that weekend and it was, we waited for hours and hours and they basically just said that, you know, yeah, he broke his collarbone, nothing we can do. And, you know, sent him off with a bunch of pain pills. So Kate sounds like he was a very adventurous. Yes. Like motocross, what else did he do? Was he always like that growing up? Mm-hmm. He always wanted to, which is really weird because it's not in, you know, clearly me and his dad were divorced and his dad wasn't into motocross. I, he it was his friends 
you know, the group of friends that at a very young age, just, they all had dirt bikes and, and we got them a dirt bike and then it just got into real racing and, and mm -hmm, yeah, we'd load up the fifth wheel every weekend and off to the races. Wow. So he raced three of the four weekends every month. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. And the whole family's involved, right? At that point. Do you know, at that point, really, no, it was Gary really didn't have any interest in it and neither did the other kids. He was the oldest. So it was usually me and him and a couple of his friends. Oh, wow. You know, we'd, we'd just pack up a fifth wheel and go, you know? Yeah. So tell us about the relationship you and Kate had early in. We've always been really close. You know, he was my first and very um, open, you know, discussed, you know, lots of things. I mean, I, I don't want to say it was typical because I don't know really what typical is, right. you know. But he also, you know, I was a single mom very early. You know, Cade was three and a half and Kenzie wasn't even one yet, you know, when I got divorced. So, and I moved down here from Logan and basically was just, it was just, I, I, I had no family. I didn't know anybody really. Just three of So, yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, looking back, I, there's always feelings of guilt of, you know, maybe if I wouldn't have worked so much and if I would have been home more and, but we don't choose our, our kids' paths and make their choices for them. So, but. We do the best we can. Yeah. We know. Yeah. So, so you're saying, so where this started is his accidents going home with pain pills. Mm-hmm. It did start with pain pills okay. for sure. And he was about 15 when it got really bad. And I knew that he had a problem was right around the age of 15. It started probably 13 or 14, maybe, you know, but I, I knew there was a problem at 15. How did you know? How did you first realize there was a problem? He kept wanting more pills. You know, he broke his collarbone two or three times, you know, and then um, he broke his ankle. He broke several bones and it was almost, I don't want to say he tried to break bones, but he he was always really anxious to get the pain pills. And how did it evolve from there? Or do you know? Yeah, his his best friend who, you know, we raced with uh, all, all through his adolescence and into high school. He, of course, broke lots of bones, too. And it, there was there was just a group of them, about five or six kids that and some knew and a couple of his friends, you know, had told me, hey, I think, you know, oh, Kate yeah. and Jeremy have a problem. So they came and told you. Yeah. Which is pretty brave on their part. Yeah. I mean, kind of hinted as such, yeah. you know, and it was interesting because I was getting some feedback too from the school, you know, of gosh, I, I don't want to say druggies, but you know how we, right. we, the druggies of the school, there's always druggies of the school, right. yeah, you know, and come to find out. Yeah. Cade was ringleader. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how was he getting the product? How was he, he was getting them from a doctor in Utah County. So a doctor supplying a minor. And that doctor's been on the news. He's okay. no longer a doctor. Okay. But yeah, he would supply Cade with, you know. So just prescriptions. 1,500 pills. 
at a time. And, you know, an oxy cotton on the streets is 80 bucks, you know, and Cade was getting them for 50 or 60. At that time, he was dealing as it got into, you know, his probably his junior year in high school, junior, senior year. What were you junior. seeing with him as far as his personality? And I mean, I can imagine that you saw a shift with him. And how was he being with the family dynamic during that time frame? He was really good. You know, some people, when they're high, you know it. At, you know, it got to a point where he was so good that you didn't know. He was a functioning addict. Wow. Until, you know, when he got tired of dealing and you can get a, you know, Oxycontin, it's the same as heroin, you know. They're opioids and it's the same thing. So you can buy a pill for 60 bucks or a balloon for 30, you know? So that's how he shifted to heroin. Um, Just couldn't afford the pills anymore. Wow. So was he, so balloon, you're shooting, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And then I'm trying to think what age he was when he started to get in trouble with the law. And when he got into heroin, I, like I said, he was a functioning addict, but heroin and, you know, the pain pills, he slept a lot where the heroin was, well, knowing now what I know, you, you, when you take an opioid, that's a downer, you know, and he would need an upper because you can't come down, you know, he'd need an upper. So they would do speed balls, which is heroin. And then when you're coming down off that, you got to do cocaine, you know, to bring you back, to bring you back. If you look back, can you pinpoint a time where you recognize that there was a shift with him from the pills to heroin? Do you know when that happened? Yes, because that's when things started disappearing. You know, he basically robbed us blind, you know, and it's interesting because one of his best friends, his dad, also somewhat knew what was going on, but was also very, um, what's, what's the word? You almost don't want to believe that your child. Oh yeah. I mean, I think that's the battle. Some of the denial. Mm -hmm. You can see it in other kids easier than you can see it in your own. Yeah. For sure. Denial for sure. Like Christy said, we just don't want to believe it. Mm -hmm. So did you start seeing a physical difference in him? Um, so you talked about stuff missing. So what kind of things did he take? Obviously to sell. So he Uh could buy the drugs. Anything that you could take to a pawn shop, all my jewelry. Oh. He took all my jewelry, but my wedding ring. He never took my wedding ring. Wow. Um, tools, you know, um, electronics, stuff like that. So that's a huge wake up call. Did it take a? Did it take time to realize stuff was missing, or did you know right away, or did you go through a denial period of? Oh, for sure, I did. Did you really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and maybe defending him to some level. I, totally. Especially with Gary, yeah. you know, that was, it really played a toll on my marriage for sure. Because, you know, Gary wasn't, or I mean, Cade wasn't Gary's yeah. son, you know, and here he is robbing us blind and, oh, I would make excuses all the time. Oh, wow. Well, or I even hide it. I would even go to the pawn shop and try to buy it back before Gary found out. Oh my gosh. Sure. Yeah. So meanwhile, you're, I mean, you're just, I can't imagine what you must've been feeling through that period. You're afraid for your child. You're angry at your child. So much anger. Yeah. Talk about that. I, I, 
anger because of the, of course, the, um, this, the theft and, you know, what he was doing, not on purpose, but, you know, to my marriage, you know, it affects every single family member. Like, you know, you have one person, but it ripples. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he was the oldest and, you know, I, yeah, he was the oldest. I had no practice. I mean, not that you want practice with, you know, having an addict in any of your kids, but I, I really, I, I, I was at a loss. You didn't know what to do. Mm-mm. No. And in talking to other parents, you know, I, you know, I definitely was, um, is it codependent? Is that the word? Yeah. Oh my gosh. If you, you know, look that word up in the dictionary, there would be a picture of me. For sure. I was in denial and I was totally helping him. I made excuses. You know, it's not his fault. It's not his choice. You know, and there at the end, you know, and educating myself and talking to doctors, addiction doctors and specialists and that, you know, um, it really it really is an illness. And I think if I were to give any advice at all to parents who might be going through that is to educate educate yourself on addiction. Do you feel like there was a point in that time frame that you were going through that, that you hit it in terms of, you know, I look at where I am today with my stories and I'm so much more open about my kids, whether it's what they're doing well. And I'm also including what they're not doing well, because I think that I gain so much more by the people that I can talk to to share their stories where I feel like, okay, you know, how do I handle this? Did you, was that missing during that time frame? Do you feel like you had that support or was that oh, no. kind of missing for you? Totally missing for me. And especially, you know, with the twins as they were growing up, you know, it, word gets out, you know, and my neighbors that knew that um, I had, my son was an addict. They wouldn't let their kids play with my kids. Yeah. It no. becomes more of a, and I wonder if this happens more often than not. I dealt with some, a small amount of what you're talking about on a smaller scale, because I think the most fascinating thing is how much you love your children. You love them unconditionally, but you hate what they're doing and their choices they're making mm-hmm. because you can't help but not be affected by it. But you became, I mean, you didn't just sit back. So you, there may have been a time you were codependent, but it sounds like it shifted for you. When did you start getting more proactive? Because you said you were seeking help. You were seeking advice. Where do you go? <laughs> do you know, I, we put him in, well, we put him through five rehabs. Oh my God. You know, of which only one he actually finished and that was out of state. Um, but he fled from the others. I, and I had him, there was one doctor that, um, sat me down and I just said, explain to me, you know, help me understand how this is for him. You know, I mean, as a parent, we, we, we just say, you know, why can't you just stop? You know, so many people said that to me, including my parents, you know, my dad was just, he could not understand why Cade couldn't just wake up one day. And say, I'm not doing this anymore. You know, I'm wrecking my family. I'm wrecking myself, you know, and just not do it anymore. But heroin especially is, this doctor described it to me as, uh, picture this mama gazelle and her baby and they're drinking water out of, you know, the lake and up comes this alligator and eats the baby. You know, and you're like, 
but the crap that's awful, you know, blah, blah, blah. But all that alligator knew was to survive. That's how it is for an addict. Wow. It's just survival. And, and he said, look at that as a mom. And you would do anything to keep your baby alive. You know, survival is just survival. You know, that's, you would do, you'd rob a bank. You'd rob a grocery store. You'd, you know, do whatever you had to keep your child alive. You know, that's how powerful addiction is to the addict. It's just survival. It's not, oh, I'm hurting my family and, you know, this is wrong and bad, blah, blah, blah. It's survival. Just like we need water to, and food yeah. to survive. So how, what was your darkest point for you? I mean, you're trying to save your family, keep your family together, keep your marriage together, and you want your son to stay alive and be healthy. What was your darkest point? My darkest point, there were several dark points. I remember just sitting in my closet in the dark, just sobbing, you know. Um, And I finally got to the point where it it was so bad, and I knew it was either my marriage, something had to give, you know, he had already started getting in trouble with the law. And I had a friend tell me once he needs to be in jail. And I remember thinking, oh no, he's not a criminal. You know, he has a problem, but he's not a criminal. He doesn't belong in jail, you know, but that's exactly where he belonged. Really? Yeah. So I, and he had gotten, I, He'd gotten caught with like pot and, and there were, he had at one time got caught with paraphernalia as well, which was a misdemeanor. And he did the plane advance and failed that miserably, you know, cause he had to go test and that and he failed out of that. So he was on the run for the last probably three years that he lived at home um, and had been in and out of jail especially that last two years he had been in and out of jail, the equivalent of, well, when it was all said and done, he was in jail for the equivalent of a year in a three-year span. But when I finally realized, and it wasn't until, you know, my husband wouldn't let him on our property. He booted him out of the house and he said, he can't step foot on our property. I remember sneaking corn dogs and chicken nuggets out in the back. We lived by a canal, you know, and I would take them out by the canal bank and leave them there. Oh, sure. and, and I snuck a pillow and a sleeping bag. But for six weeks, almost six weeks, he slept in the park and wherever he could, you know, nowhere. And how old was he at this time? At this time, he was probably 19 or 19 because he was an adult at this time. Yeah. So I couldn't, you know, where he was an adult. So this is several years, you know, in in the making at this time, because it it started getting bad, like I say, when he was about 15. So I want to say he was probably 18-ish or 19 at at the time. So are there any kind of support groups out there for parents? I mean, seriously, I feel like you're kind of stuck in how do you deal with this? How do you not want to protect your child? But you're, but I understand Gary's point of you're afraid to let him on your premise. What's he, how was his siblings? How did he, how was the relationship with all of them through all this? Really, it was, he was never 
angry or violent or that just wasn't ever in his nature. Yeah. You know, and even the drugs didn't make him that way. You know, all the kids loved him, you know, yeah, and they were sad true. when he didn't live with us anymore. They were sad when he went to jail. Yeah. They, you know, yeah, he, he had a, all the kids had a great relationship. Now I, I feel like I kind of, I, at, at a point I was so consumed with Cade and keeping him alive that I kind of let my other kids, especially Kenzie, you know, fall through the cracks. I feel like I let Brie down and that I never took time to build that relationship, you know? Yeah. Because I was so consumed with Kate and keeping him alive. Well, and to navigate, you know, the jail and I'm listening to you talk about taking food out to him and him sleeping in a park and my heart breaks and it's not even at a level of what I'm sure you were experiencing to know that your child is out there. And maybe there was some form of comfort, for lack of a better word, when he was in jail because you knew he was probably, I mean, he was sober and he was alive and he had a roof over his head and all of that brought its level of sanity through all of that. For sure. I, I got to a point where I I had a couple of friends that were cops and we even had a, an officer in the family on Gary's side that had, you know, it was known, don't you ever throw my name out there, don't, you know, for any favors or anything. But it, it got to a point where I had to get him arrested for that very reason, you know, because knowing that he was safe, he was alive, he had a roof over his head and was getting fed. Yeah. No. So you kept fighting. I mean, you said you put him through five programs, which mm -hmm. those aren't cheap. No. And I mean, and he he left four of them, you said, right? Mm -hmm. He only stuck through one, which was out of state. Why did that one make the difference? Because he was in a place he didn't know where to flee to? Or yeah. is that why? Yeah. Okay. There were no triggers. You know, there he had triggers throughout the whole valley, you know, um, that he's like, I can't be there, mom. You know, that's a trigger for me. And um, so the one he did finish, he went to Arizona and he ended up staying there for about nine months after. But then slipped right back in. And, and every time an addict is clean and then goes back, it, it's worse than it was before they started. And the risk is higher because oh, their body yes. is clear. Yes. And that's usually when they, you know, when they OD because they think they can pick up where they left off. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and that's usually, I mean, we, I remember we went to three or four of his friends' funerals. Oh my god! And one of them with kids. Really? Yeah. So they still go into their adult life. Yes. And can still be an addict and function. Like you said, they can be high functioning addicts. Yeah. I never really thought about somebody who it's true. It's that mental perception that if you're doing heroin, you cannot be totally functioning or there's going to be physical signs that. Right. Uh, not with heroin. Okay. It's not, I mean, he lost a lot of weight when I picked him up though, after he had been on the streets, you know, and I hadn't seen him for, it was probably five, five and a half weeks. And I picked him up. I didn't even recognize him. And I had taken him into jail, into the jail, and he weighed 147 pounds. 
that wow. day I took him in. Did Kate ever come to you and say, I can't do this anymore? Oh, yes. He would just sob and just say, Mom, I don't, I, nobody wants to quit more than I do. I, I can't. What was his rock bottom? I always thought that it would be jail. You know, when I finally wrapped my brain around that, that yes, he does belong in jail, I thought that would be his rock bottom because, you know, jail. No, no, that wasn't. Um, And when it's all said and done, we had this conversation. um, I'm like, what was it for you? You know, and he found the day he found out he was going to be a dad. Um, his dad was also is still an addict. And he always said in the back of my mind, I always knew the one thing that could trump heroin. And that was being a dad. Really? So it wasn't necessarily a rock bottom for him. It was an inspiration to be more. Yep. Yeah. And that wasn't a decision that I, I mean, I had nothing to do with that. That was him. You know, I have parents ask me all the time, well, what'd you do? You know, how did you get him to his, you know, what was his rock bottom? What'd you do to get him to his rock bottom? I didn't do anything. I tried to. So we're talking about Cade today and he has broken that from his life. And it was him being a dad that changed it for him. Mm -hmm. So when was that? How long ago was that? His oldest just turned eight. So that was what, eight and a half years ago that he, you know, or so roughly that he, when he found out he was going to be a dad and he was still running from drug court, you know, running from the law. Then he had been kicked out twice. And at that time I got very familiar with the drug court system. They all knew me by name. They know, you know, knew who I was and who Cade was. And, and, um, when, when he found out he was going to be a dad, he called one of his, um, I can't remember what they're called. They're a police officer that like when Cade was living in the house, he would have to come and inspect our house and his room just at random times, um, which when he would come, we would find balloons all over the place. Oh, really? Yeah. But he, and he had told me, he says, you know, I've been doing this for 17 years at that time. And he said, I don't know what it is about him. But there's just something about him. This is the police officer mm-hmm. who was coming that. to your house. Meaning that he he just felt like he it wasn't like all the other one the other kids that he couldn't really explain it. It, it was there was something different about Kate that he felt connected. To. Yes, was it his parole officer? Is that what you're saying? He, it would be kind of like a parole officer, but he he was his yeah kind of. It wasn't parole, but maybe probation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and I got to know him, you know, fairly well, too. Um, but that day that Kate found out he was going to be a dad, you know, he had turned himself in before and it didn't do anything, you know, with the courts. They just really? took him in. It, yep. Okay. It, it did nothing. And he did, I think, two or three months at that time, you know, and got out and did good for a while again yeah. and then was right back into it. So this time he called that officer and he said, yeah, you meet me at the village inn or whatever. And then they went to the station and he wrote an email to the judge 
you know, and said, hey, I've got him and he's turning himself in, you know, because last time he just, he turned himself into the jail yeah. and it just, nobody cared, Yeah, you know, um, and this guy really, he, he sent the email to the judge and then I'll never forget sitting in the back of that courtroom, um, that day when he saw the judge and, you know, his files three inches thick and, and he said, I, I know he got up there and he said, I know I belong at the point of the mountain. You know, but I'm going to be a dad and I'm here to tell you, I will, if I have to come back, if you'll let me out to work during the day, I will sleep every night here in jail for the rest of my life if I have to. If you'll just let me work and let me see my daughter be born. Wow. So I just remember sitting back there going, who is that? And where is my son? You know, I mean, he it was just, it's just like it was a different person. Were you cautiously hopeful that this was real? Or oh, were you, yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's hard to be so super excited because you're afraid you're going to be let down or. Well, and everybody, I, by this time I had been in the drug court system. I mean, I knew it and everybody told me, sure, nobody gets three tries in drug really? court. Nobody. And they gave him a chance. Yeah. And even the judge said, I can't believe I'm doing this, you know, and everybody in here has given me the look. Really? You know, but yeah, he let him in and, and he went to jail for about six months, but he was out for his, the birth of his daughter, you know, and he finished drug court, which that in itself is a feat. Not, I, I can't even remember. I think back at that time and it might be, uh, you know, it was right around 28% that graduate and actually finish really? drug court. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And he did. And the judge spoke, that judge spoke at his graduation. Really? Yeah. It was really, it was really neat. So Um, what is drug court? What does that mean? It is a program that the state has. I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it. Um, They have to do uh, like they have to test, you know, so many times you have a color and anytime your, your color is called, you have to go test. You have to go through classes. You know, it's just kind of a, it's more like maybe an outpatient kind of, but not accountability. Yes. Yeah. Sounds like it's just an accountability piece, but you still need the rehab, right? Yeah. It's not, that's what I mean. It's not rehab per se, but you do have to take some classes, counseling kind of, and you have to test. He was probably testing two or three times a week. But he never made it. That's the thing. When he would get out and get put back in, you know, or admitted to even drug court, he never could have a clean. He, I don't I don't know if he ever had any clean tests. Really? Yeah. You know, what's so fascinating to me, Sheridan, is, you know, Christy asked you the rock bottom. I'm kind of going back just a little bit. But did he go to the funerals of those friends? Uh-huh. And that didn't. No. That was not a wake up call. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I just was thinking about that. <laughs> yeah. Like, and were they in the system? Were they trying to go to drug court? Mm-hmm. Well, they were mm-hmm. all in that system. Mm-hmm. Okay. So wow. when he was when he made the decision, he gets the judge to give him another chance. I, I can't imagine coming off heroin is, I mean, it, it's got to be one of the most difficult things to do. You have the withdrawals, all of those things, which I know can kill a person in and of itself. Mm-hmm. How did he navigate that? We detoxed him seven times in the hospital, in the ER, seven times. 
He detoxed one time in jail when he got caught. So I, I wasn't even there, but they picked him up and he had to detox in jail. And he told me, mom, I will kill myself before I will ever detox in jail again. Oh, I bet it was brutal. It is. Like, I, I tried to do it a couple of times at home, you know, because it was 3500 bucks pop every time just to detox. That doesn't, the, the, the rehabs won't even take them until they're detoxed. But yeah, you, in it, we all know you can't go back to the very environment, you know? So even yeah. if you, you detox him that many times, but he goes right back to the same people he's hanging out with, same right. situation. Well, yeah. I mean, it's so hard when you think about it. it. It's no different. Well, it is different. But when you're talking about someone who's trying to quit alcohol and they've got their group of people that they're doing stuff with. And if you come out of a rehab, but you don't have any other friends, you, and you think that you've got this, but then you're right back in. It's so easy to fall back in. Not that you're intentionally doing that, but you think you've got it. You're pretty empowered at that point because you've been sober for a period of time, 30 days, 60 days. So you right. feel this, I think, false sense of power that you've got it. And it's easy to fall back in because what else are you going to do? Who sit at home? Yeah. When you and no social life, which that you, have to you change know, your environment. right? Changing your and that's a hard thing to do. It takes so mm-hmm. much power. Well, and he didn't know of any sober so-called friends. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that's all he ever knew from such a young age. Yeah. You know, it's like I, I, but at this point, you know, towards the end, and he was an adult, and you know, going to be a dad. At, at that point, I don't think it was about friends at, at that point. But I just remember this was probably a year prior to this, you know, my rock bottom. I remember just, you know, I got so tired of praying to God and, you know, please give me strength to make it through the flipping day. You know what I mean? I finally just said, you know what, God, I, I've done all I can do as a mom. I, I'm handing him back to you. please. Do something or take him. Nobody was more miserable than him. And I, at that point, I was past my, you know, misery. I, I couldn't stand seeing him suffer. Yeah. I, I begged God to take him. Wow. Tell us where Kate is today. <laughs> he is. I almost feel guilty sometimes talking about it, you know, because I know I'm one of the very few lucky parents. You know, he's thriving. He just started his own business, you know, six months ago. And, um, but he's been working in that field, you know, for all through high school. And that was another thing too. When I told you he was a functioning addict, he went to work every day. You know, he was really a functioning addict until it got to where he, when he was living on the streets and that clearly, but he's got two kids and is the best dad in the world. and is so happy and successful and healthy. And he still is taking some medication Uh huh. Uh, once in a while. You know, we've, we've talked about that because it's been, well, he's been sober for yeah eight years, eight and a half years now. Cause, and especially in the early years, I'm like, dude, do you ever, you know, the, the urges, you know, do you, yeah. do you get those? And he's like, I, not like I used to, you know, once in a while I will, um, 
his body physically will not so much anymore, but you know, in the ongoing or the beginning stages, that's when he was using the naloxone or, you know, that, but he, he just, it really, it was just, it was a mindset for him. He just knew I, that was the one thing that would trump heroin was being a dad. Well, they've always said that, you know, as much as everybody's fighting for a family member or whoever, they've got to get to a point where they want it for themselves. Yes. Interventions, I don't know how successful interventions really are because yeah. I think that the addict has to get to that place. And some call it rock bottom. And I think that's not your story. It was yeah. him In a being inspired and awakened. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit ago what you would tell another parent. I want you to elaborate on that, you know, going back and thinking about what you've been through, how hard it was. What would you tell a parent that is living in that right now today and what they can do or can't do and resolve to? I still, even though, you know, it was hard for me. I remember when that parent told me you need, he needs to be in jail. And I remember being so upset and thinking, you're, you know, you're a jerk. You know, he doesn't belong in jail. But that is exactly where he belonged for his sake and mine, really. And and I don't want to say that's a start because it's not a start, but it's maybe because they are, you know, he, he, he will be sober for 30, 60 days, whatever it is. So he might have a clear head for a little bit. And maybe each time he gets a clear head that he can really think, I don't know when it was for him that it hit him that, oh yeah, when I'm, I'm not going to be a dad like my dad was, you know, I, I don't know when that really, when he knew, I, I don't know if it was just then when he found out he was going to be a dad, yeah. but I would, uh, definitely the, the whole codependent thing. Um, and I know it's hard. It's so hard because you love your kids so much. And especially in the beginning, lots of denial. Oh, yeah, that's, you know, that's not just like the addict is also in yeah. denial. Just like Cade never thought he would die. He never thought he would die, you know. And we talked about it several times, even during all this, you know. We knew that he shouldn't be alive. And and I told him, there's a reason you're still here, dude. And, you know, let's figure that out because there's definitely a re- It's not your time. What do you say to the mother that is afraid to talk about what she's dealing with, that's hiding it and is, and is ashamed? The best thing she can do is talk about it, especially with other parents that have been through it because they've been there. What she, I, I felt so much shame, especially when, you know, my, my little ones couldn't play or go over or their friends couldn't come to our house, you know? Cause we have an addict. Yeah. You know, um, if you, if you can get through that codependency part of it as quick as you can, I know you have to go through that, you know, cause I just think that's human nature, but get through that period as, as fast as you can and get to the part where you can really help. You might not be able to cure them, you know, but right. you can help, you know, and even through all of that, I was always, Kate and I always stayed close. And I still had deep conversations. Yeah. And, it's also, uh-huh. it's being, I think the hardest part is being brave enough to ask for help because you become so vulnerable when the minute you're 
I need help. My child's going through this because you have to face it. And facing it is the hardest thing, I would think. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Off the bat. And I didn't really have any friends, so to speak, to talk to either. The one of his best friend, you know, he still is an addict and they're still in contact. He he lives with them still. He's 32 and still, they're still enabling, enabling him big time. That's, I just can't even imagine at 32. Yeah. Wow. And he was the one that told me my son belonged in jail. Oh, wow. That's Mm -hmm. interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, Sheridan, I think you should not feel guilty that you have a great outcome. I wish and hope more people will have a great outcome for their child or anybody they know, because it's good to know there's hope. I think the biggest thing is there Mm -hmm. is hope. People do survive. People do come out of it. And I think it's, it affects everybody. Did your whole family have counseling? Did you, how did you, how did you keep it together? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't know if I kept it together. Um, but yeah, I went to a lot of, um, what are the AA ones? What there's oh, yeah. the parents of Gary didn't really, was never really interested in any of that. We, we did see a, a counselor through the thing, just to keep our marriage together. Yeah. Um, but he wasn't really a counselor of, you know, because really, how do you counsel that with an addict, you know, yeah. trying, you know, it was just, it really was just kind of a shit show. And yeah. we just, sometimes you just, I don't know how to not make it through. So that was never an option for me. You're Honestly. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, and, and I think that my kids are too. Yeah. I, you know, clearly Kate's a survivor too. And, you know, I have my second daughter that went through a, an, a crack addiction and not to say that it was easier for me, but it, I, I kind of knew what to do, you know? And yep. First thing I did was get her in jail as fast as I could. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. So that, that's gotta learned. be hard. I, I mean, mean oh, can you I imagine sure being, you know, making that phone call or whatever that looks like to put your child in jail? I mean, that's not an easy decision. You no. are sacrificing oh. so much mentally and for sure. And you know, it's one thing for your son to be in jail, but your daughter, that first time I had to go visit her oh, and she just cried and cried. And she said, I'm so sorry, mom. I never thought I would be on this side of the glass. Did it save her? Yeah. It was kind of a, her wake mm-hmm. up call. She now is, well, you, you wouldn't believe her you, to have a conversation with her. She is just like, mm-hmm. really and that's what she's going out in. She wants to. Oh. Not a counselor. So there's, she says there's such a difference between counseling and finding yourself. You know, to her, it's all, you know, she said, I, I had to learn to love myself before I could ever love anybody else. Good for her. You know, she's on a very spiritual, different spiritual level. Kate is successful and so is Kenzie, but they're two different, completely different success stories. I love that. Well. We want to give you a big thank you for sharing your story, but we have started asking, uh, we have a little tradition, and especially this is poignant for you. We're asking our guests if you could write a letter to your 20-year-old self after all you have been through, what would you say? Run like hell. 
<laughs> wow. I know. It's a deep question. That is a deep question. What would you tell yourself? Survive. Okay. Do what you have to do to survive. But this too shall pass. I So many times. Oh, wow. That is a deep question. I, just survive. I, I would survive. Because it's worth it. Yes. It's never not worth it. It's never not worth it. I had four other kids that I had to. And Kenzie, I felt like really slipped through the cracks through all of that. But I, I would, you know, and Kate has taught and Kenzie has taught our younger, the twins, you know, a lot. Kate was very, very just point blank with Trayson from a young age and said, you will be offered drugs. It, it's just like candy. And they're going to say, take this. It's not bad. My mom takes it all the time. or My dad takes it all the time. You will. And the first time you do, you don't do it one time. No, you have to turn the other way. I mean, you have to say no. He was very, no sugarcoating anything. He said, you, you, you do it once, you're hooked. That's good. Always remember that. So I, I, yeah, he, he did a lot more with the twins than, you, you know, when it comes to that, that arena. Yeah. And they saw it. They saw it firsthand from, they were really young. I mean, really young. Kids know what's going on. That was effective. Mm -hmm. Well, we want to thank you for sharing your story. We know sometimes it's hard to share those deep secrets that we sometimes hold in our families, but we appreciate you being vulnerable with us. And we are so glad that Kate is where he is today. Thank you. You guys both get to share your stories and help others. Thank you. Me too. Well, we want to thank Sheridan Cannon so much for her bravery and sharing her story and what the truth about it and what it looked like in living that hell of drug addiction and trying to keep it all together and trying to fight for your son, trying to fight for your family and the reality that kind of hit us. Well, when she talks about just not wanting to believe that that was happening and it didn't matter what everyone was saying around you, you want to believe the best. And that that couldn't happen to you. And, you know, just the heartbreak that went along with watching her son go through that. And, you know, honestly, I could see myself doing the same thing. And I just, you know, really want to honor what she's done and how much she did to, you know, manage her family, keep them together, because it, it can't not impact you as a couple and as a family unit. But they've done a beautiful job. Her son is doing amazing. And I know she couldn't be more proud. And so we're just so grateful that she came in to share her story with us. Yeah. And I want to, another takeaway I got from that too, is I want to encourage everybody. It's easy to shun people or the shame. We talked about the embarrassment of dealing with that and how other families say, don't play with those kids or don't be around those kids. And Again, another message is we've got to pull together and help people. And we need to be real. We need to be real. Talk about the shit that is happening in your home so that you can gain insight from other people that may have been down that road. And know you're not alone. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you think someone could benefit, please share. If there's a conversation you think we should be having or a topic that resonated with you, please let us know. You can engage and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Pieces of a Woman Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. If you listen to us on Apple, leave us a five-star rating and a comment. 